This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Introduction. And as we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 1 John 4.14 It has been almost 2,000 years since the birth of Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. This world is not yet saved. The question is, why not? There are several possible Christian answers, all of which have been offered by Christians in the past. 1. It is not God's time yet. 2. The church is not ready yet. 3. Saving this world must wait for the millennium. 4. This world will never be saved because a. The millennium is exclusively spiritual, b. The promised victory is exclusively spiritual, and c. Most people will not experience it. What is most remarkable, or not so remarkable as this book will demonstrate, is that two millennia after the incarnation of God's Son in history, his followers have no idea what a saved world ought to look like. They have no blueprint for a uniquely biblical social order. There is no comprehensive body of materials that would point to a solution to this question. How would a Bible-based society differ from previous societies and present ones? Hardly anyone is even asking the question. Hardly Hardly anyone ever has. A few people are asking it. Liberation theologians, Marxist socialists, and Christian reconstructionists, social neo-Puritans. Both schools of thought are far outside the mainstream of the Christian church. Anyway, the reconstructionists are. There are several reasons for this lack of interest in social theory. I explore some of them in this book. A basic reason is that the church has yet to come to any agreement on many of the fundamental issues of the faith. There is agreement on the doctrines of the Trinity and the Incarnation, which were put into their basic formulation by the Church Councils of Nicaea, 325, Constantinople, 382, Ephesus, 431, and Chalcedon, 451. The Athanasian and Nicene creeds are products of this early agreement. The Church International believes that the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, became flesh in the form of perfect humanity, in union but without intermixture. There is also agreement on the final judgment. At the resurrection of all men, Christ will separate the sheep from the goats, with the goats sent into eternal fire. There will be no second chance for the goats. The areas of disagreement are quite extensive. Christians have come to no agreement regarding such basic biblical themes as these, the proper structuring of church authority, hierarchy, the nature of the moral law and its relation, if any, to Old Testament law, the nature of the sanctions that God brings in history, and the nature and timing of the millennium. Another reason for the lack of interest in social theory is that Christians still do not agree on the fundamental message of the Bible. This may sound fantastic, but it is actually the case. If you were to ask ten Christians what the message of the Bible is, cover to cover, you would probably get ten different answers. They would be related to Jesus Christ in some way, or to his salvation, but they would not be the same answer. I'm not speaking of phrasing, I mean different answers. Try this experiment. Write down in one sentence what you believe is the most fundamental theme in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, including even the book of Esther, which does not mention 
the, the name of God. Then compare your answer to the one I offer on the next page. Remember, keep your answer to a single sentence. Minimize the semicolons, please. Here is the correct answer in six words. The transition from wrath to grace. It sounds so simple. It is simple. Children can understand it. It is also frighteningly comprehensive and complex. It includes everything. Theologians can barely understand it. Few do, as I hope to show in this book. It is the theme of the Bible. There is no more fundamental theme that is pursued explicitly from beginning to end, not the glory of God, not the sovereignty of God, not even the mode of baptism. The one theme that unites all passages in the Bible is God's grace to mankind in providing the means of deliverance from God's wrath to God's blessing. The New Testament's emphasis on is personal deliverance from eternal wrath to eternal blessing. The Old Testament's emphasis is corporate deliverance from temporal wrath to temporal blessing. These dual emphases do not cancel each other out. The theme of eternal personal deliverance is not entirely absent from the Old Testament, and the theme of corporate historical deliverance is not entirely absent from the New Testament. But each testament has a particular emphasis. Neither emphasis denies the other. The Church, rest assured, has not agreed on this. Deliverance in History God made promises to the Israelites just before they covenanted with him and just before he gave them his law. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. Exodus 19.3-6 The Egyptians had come under God's wrath. The Israelites had been delivered from Egyptian slavery. It could not have been any clearer. Here was a God who could and would fulfill his promises to his people in history. He asked them to tie themselves to him in a covenant a perpetual legal personal bond. They did. They came under the terms of this covenant. It was ratified again by their children just before they entered the promised land. They had to obey. Behold, I set before you this day a blessing and a curse, a blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you this day, and a curse if you will not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside out of the way which I command you this day to go after other gods, which ye have not known. And it shall come to pass, when the Lord thy God hath brought thee in unto the land whither thou goest to possess it, that thou shalt put the blessing upon Mount Gerizim and the curse upon Mount Ebal. Deuteronomy 11, 26-29 National obedience would bring national blessings. These blessings are summarized in Leviticus 26, 3-12, and again in Deuteronomy 28, 1-14. National transgression would bring national cursings. Leviticus 26:14-39, Deuteronomy 28:15-68. The nation would inevitably disobey. God told Moses, and the Lord said unto Moses, Behold, thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, and this people will rise up and go a whoring after the gods of the strangers of the land, whither they go to be among among them. 
and will forsake me, and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Are not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? Deuteronomy 31, 16, and 17. Nevertheless, there was always this hope before the people, the hope of guaranteed deliverance through national repentance. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their trespass which they trespassed against me, and that they also have walked contrary unto me, and that I also have walked contrary unto them, and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with them, with Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember, and I will remember the land. The land also shall be left of them, and shall enjoy her Sabbaths, while she lieth desolate without them. And they shall accept of the punishment of their iniquity, because even because they despised my judgments, and because their soul abhorred my statutes. And yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not cast them away, neither will I abhor them, to destroy them utterly, and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. Leviticus 26, 40-44 We see in the Old Testament a series of devastating national cursings, yet also restorations. God's people obey and are then blessed. Then they forget what, who God is and what he has done for them. He brings them under his wrath. Here is continuity, the enjoyment of blessings, which in turn leads to forgetfulness and sin. Here is also discontinuity, the destruction of their daily routines of sin and rebellion by God's direct intervention into history. God's positive sanctions of blessing, continuity, if used to further sin, will call forth his negative sanctions of cursing, discontinuity. The progressive expansion of God's blessings in history will not be allowed by God to subsidize a continual expansion of sin. Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in not keeping his commandments, and his judgments, and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when thou hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses, and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up, and thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, and that he might prove thee, to do thee good at, thy, at the latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and my, the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth that he may establish his covenant which he sware unto thy fathers, as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou do at all forget the Lord thy God, and walk after other gods, and serve them, and worship them, I testify against you this day that ye shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyeth before your face, so shall ye perish, because ye would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy eight eleven through 20 New heaven and new earth. There was also a promise of covenantal fulfillment in history, the beginning of God's new heaven and new earth. 
the pattern of continuity and discontinuity will cease. The following prophetic passage refers to a future, still unfulfilled period of earthly blessings. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, and the sinner being an hundred years old shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall enjoy, enjoy long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. Isaiah 65:17-24. This prophecy has to refer to history, for it says that there will be sinners practicing evil and children dying at age 100. In the midst of evil, righteous people shall flourish. History, not heaven alone or the post-resurrection world alone, is the realm of the new heaven and new earth. The transition to this externally blessed realm is historical. Will God remember sin? Not judicially. Obviously, God does not develop a case of total amnesia. His grace in history is sufficient. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Psalm 103, 8-13 A day is coming when men's cultural deliverance will be so widespread because of men's widespread repentance that God will bring unprecedented blessings in history. What then of eternity? Deliverance in eternity. Jesus came to placate God's wrath. He lived a perfect life, died at the hands of sinners, and rose again. He ascended into heaven. Sinful men's debt to God has been paid. They can appropriate this payment as their own. On this legal basis, and only on this legal basis, men can find deliverance from God's eternal wrath to come. This deliverance begins in history. This is the New Testament's version of the fundamental biblical theme of the transition from cursing to blessing. It is clear that in the Old Testament, the discontinuities of this transition, captivity and deliverance, were historical. What about the discontinuities in the New Testament? It is also clear that the ultimate discontinuity in this life is the transition from God's wrath to His grace. This is a far greater discontinuity than mere physical death. It takes place in history. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into His hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3.35-36 God's free gift of eternal life is offered in history, and only in history. 
and it is accepted in history, and only in history. And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Hebrews 9, 27-28 What this means is simple to state. Eternal deliverance takes place in history. The problem is, Christian theologians have not taken this principle seriously outside of the doctrine of soteriology, salvation, narrowly defined as soul-saving alone. The ultimate discontinuities are historical. There are three great discontinuities in history. One, Adam's fall, which was the judicial basis of mankind's transition from grace to wrath. Two, the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. And three, Jesus Christ's separation from God the Father on the cross. Compared to these three events, all other historical and cosmic discontinuities are minor. While most Christians would agree with this in principle, they are still almost hypnotized by those passages that describe the discontinuity between this world and the final judgment. They regard the coming fiery transformation of the skies as the really big event, in their own thinking, dwarfing the death of Christ. The order of magnitude separating the death of Christ from the final judgment is much greater than the order of magnitude between this world and the post-resurrection world. How can I be so sure? Because I recognize that the order of magnitude separating 1. Adam's legal status before God immediately prior to his fall from 2. His legal status immediately after his was far greater than the order of magnitude separating a. the pre-fall physical world from b. the post-fall physical world. Transgressing God's one law in Eden was a monumental discontinuity. God's curse on the world was merely God's negative physical sanction. God's common grace to Adam and the creation, made possible because of Christ's payment to God on the cross, allowed God to reduce his negative physical sanctions on both Adam and the environment. God's negative physical sanctions were minimal compared to Adam's transgression. Therefore, compared with the death of Christ, the future positive physical sanctions of final judgment in the post-judgment world will also be minimal. Let me put this in a different way. The order of magnitude of the separation of Jesus Christ from God the Father at the cross was analogous to the separation of heaven from hell or the post-judgment perfection of the new heaven and new earth from the perfection of the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14-15 This is the judicial difference between saved and lost. Compared to this, the physical circumstances of Christ's bodily return to earth are minimal. Therefore, the magnitude of the judicial transition from wrath to grace in history far outshadows the physical transition from this world to the next. Adam's physical death was a covenantal result, sanctions, of his transgression in history. Jesus' physical resurrection was a covenantal result of his perfect atonement in history of God's wrath. It is not physical death that stands as life's great discontinuity, greatest discontinuity, the greatest discontinuity in life is the judicial transition from wrath to grace. Jesus made this plain when he told men what to fear most. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10:28. Each person's discontinuity from grace to wrath is judicial and automatic. 
Everyone is born under the judicial curse against Adam. This is the doctrine of original sin. Thus, there is no major transition from covenant breaking in history to hell. There is no judicial transition. Eternity in the lake of fire is merely an extension of life lived apart from God's redeeming grace in history. In short, deliverance in eternity begins in history. The Church has always said that it believes this. Nevertheless, the Church has only rarely applied this most fundamental of all biblical themes to its overall theological system. Specifically, churches have refused to apply this principle to eschatology. One thing that churches agree on today is that man's covenantal judicial deliverance in history must be understood as strictly spiritual personal, and in no sense, social. The judicial transition from wrath to grace supposedly applies only to the individual soul, not to the physical body or the body politic. What then of the Old Testament? Is it simply God's word emeritus? For the major theme of the Old Testament is God's social and institutional deliverance of his people in history. Does the New Testament abandon this perspective? Or does it simply not emphasize it, taking for granted our acceptance of the Old Testament's message of comprehensive deliverance in history? The answers to these questions have divided the Church for almost 1900 years. We need to get agreement. Conclusion This book is a reassessment of three covenantal themes, Biblical Law, God's Sanctions in History, and the Millennium, though primarily the latter two. I begin with this obvious New Testament teaching. The fundamental transition from personal wrath to grace is historical, not post-final judgment. What I try to show is that the Bible teaches that this fundamental historical transition from wrath to grace is also social and cultural. The post-judgment new heaven and new earth will be an extension of the historical new heaven and new earth, as surely as each redeemed person's resurrected body will be an extension of his historical body. There is therefore a very significant continuity between this world and the world to come. This is true of both aspects of both worlds, saved versus lost. The implications of this statement are monumental, as I hope to show in this book. There is a coming discontinuity called the final judgment, but compared to the discontinuity in history from God's wrath to God's grace, Christ's atonement and his saints' personal regeneration, it will be a comparatively minor affair. Lots of trumpets and noise, plus a few million or a few billion people flying upward all at once but hardly anything on the order or magnitude of the judicial discontinuity of personal regeneration in history. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If I am wrong about this, then the crucifixion was a gigantic error, a case of overkill. It was an historical event, and it has cosmic implications. But if the post-historical cosmic results of the crucifixion are more important, more of a discontinuity, than God's negative sanctions against Jesus Christ on the cross, then what was the purpose of the Incarnation? Why didn't the entire legal transaction between Father and Son take place in Heaven? Why did Jesus Christ have to utter the most terrifying words in history, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew twenty-seven forty-six b any attempt to elevate the coming transition from the, this world to the next, above the historical discontinuities of Adam's fall, the Incarnation, and Christ's crucifixion, is deeply misguided theologically. Such a view of the past relegates history to a secondary consideration. 
If history is secondary, then the Incarnation and Crucifixion are also secondary. No Christian would admit this openly, of course, yet virtually all of them psychologically accept it as an operational fact of life. Most Christians, no matter what they say about the centrality of the crucifixion and its soul-transforming results, do not really believe it. They regard Jesus' second coming at the final judgment, or to begin the millennial age, as by far the most spectacular discontinuity. The error in such thinking is to regard the cosmic results of the judicial covenantal transactions as more important than the judicial transactions themselves. This places far too great an emphasis on the material aspects of salvation and not enough on the judicial. Notice I did not say spiritual. I am not here contrasting the spiritual aspects of life with the material. I am contrasting the judicial covenantal aspects with the material. God the Father took his Son to the cross in history primarily to settle a judicial debt that had been contracted in history. The goal of the cross was only secondarily to restore a fallen cosmos either in history or eternity. Adam's transition from grace to wrath, Genesis 3, 6-7, preceded God's curse on Adam and the cosmos, Genesis 3:17-19, which was secondary to it. Similarly, Jesus' crucifixion preceded his bodily resurrection and the beginning of the restoration of the cosmos. In short, keeping God the Father happy with man was of far greater importance than restoring their creation. But this does not negate the reality of that restoration, both in history and eternity. That restoration is as real as the original cursing of it by God in the garden. I do not want to leave the impression that I regard the coming restoration of all things at the final judgment as merely equal in magnitude to God's original curse of the earth. It is far greater. But consider what this means. It is greater because God's blessings are more fundamental than God's cursings. His wrath is terrible. His grace is far greater. We must not argue for the equal ultimacy of grace and wrath, if by this we mean equal effect. They are equal in duration, not equal in effect. While most Christians say they believe this, presumably all Christians do believe it, they do not believe it with respect to history. They are inconsistent. This book is my attempt to restore consistency in their thinking. The fundamental discontinuities in God's providential decree, including the post-resurrection world, are judicial covenantal, not physical cosmic. The modern evangelical church does not really believe this, even though officially most of its theologians would agree if pressured to respond. But no one pressures them to respond. The issue never occurs to anyone. This is because the modern church believes far more in the future cosmic discontinuity of the second coming of Christ than in the combined historic and transhistoric discontinuities of personal and then social transformation. The modern church optimistically looks up far more than it optimistically looks forward. With this perspective in mind, consider the theme of this book, the relationship between God's historical sanctions and the biblical doctrine of the millennium. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce 
including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.